This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second Half of Part One. Chapter 2 The mystics again are, by their very constitution, acutely conscious of the free and active world of becoming, the divine immanence and its travail. It is in them, and they are in it, or, as they put it in their blunt theological way, the Spirit of God is within you. But they are not satisfied with this statement and this knowledge, and here it is that they part company with vitalism. It is, they think, but half a truth. To know reality in this way, to know it in its dynamic aspect, enter into the great life of the all. This is indeed, in the last resort, to know it supremely from the point of view of man, to liberate from selfhood the human consciousness but it is not to know it from the point of view of God. There are planes of being beyond this, countries dark to the intellect, deeps into which only the very greatest contemplators have looked. These, coming forth, have declared with Rusburick that God, according to the persons, is eternal work, but according to the essence and its perpetual stillness, he is eternal rest. The full spiritual consciousness of the true mystic is developed not in one, but in two apparently opposite but really complementary directions. Io vidi ambulacorte del ciel manifeste. On the one hand, he is intensely aware of, and knows himself to be at one with that active world of becoming, that imminent life from which his own life takes its rise. Hence, though he has broken for ever with the bondage of the senses, he perceives in every manifestation of life a sacramental meaning, a loveliness, a wonder, a heightened significance, which is hidden from other men. He may, with St. Francis, call the sun and the moon, water and fire, his brothers and sisters, or receive, with Blake, the message of the trees, because of his cultivation of disinterested love, because his outlook is not conditioned by the exclusive action of the will to live, he has attained the power of communion with the living reality of the universe, and in this respect can truly say that he finds God in all and all in God. Thus the skilled spiritual vision of Lady Julian, transcending the limitations of human perception, entering into harmony with a larger world whose rhythms cannot be received by common men, saw the all-enfolding divine life, the mesh of reality. For as the body is clad in the cloth, she said, and the flesh in the skin, and the bones in the flesh, and the heart in the whole, so are we, soul and body, clad in the goodness of God and enclosed. Yea, and more homely, for all these may waste and wear away, but the goodness of God is ever whole. Many mystical poets and pantheistic mystics 
never pass beyond this degree of lucidity. On the other hand, the full mystic consciousness also attains to what is, I think, its really characteristic quality. It develops the power of apprehending the absolute, pure being, the utterly transcendent, or, as its possessor would say, can experience passive union with God. This all-round expansion of consciousness, with its dual power of knowing by communion the temporal and eternal, imminent and transcendent aspects of reality, the life of the all, vivid, flowing and changing, and the changeless, conditionless life of the one, is the peculiar mark, the ultimo sigillo, of the great mystic, and must never be forgotten in studying his life and work. As the ordinary man is the meeting place between two stages of reality, the sense world and the world of spiritual life, so the mystic, standing head and shoulders above ordinary men, is again the meeting place between two orders. Or, if you like it better, he is able to perceive and react to reality under two modes. On the one hand, he knows and rests in the eternal world of pure being, the sea pacific of the Godhead, indubitably present to him in his ecstasies, attained by him in the union of love. On the other, he knows and works in that stormy sea, the vital world of becoming, which is the expression of its will. Illuminated men, says Rusburick, are caught up above the reason into naked vision. There the divine unity dwells and calls them. Hence their bare vision, cleansed and free, penetrates the activity of all created things, and pursues it to search it out even to its height. Though philosophy has striven since thought began, and striven in vain, to resolve the paradox of being and becoming, of eternity and time, she has failed strangely enough to perceive that a certain type of personality has substituted experience for her guesses at truth, and achieved its solution not by the dubious processes of thought, but by direct perception. To the great mystic, the problem of the absolute presents itself in terms of life, not in terms of dialectic. He solves it in terms of life, by a change or growth of consciousness which, thanks to his peculiar genius, enables him to apprehend that twofold vision of reality which eludes the perceptive powers of other men. It is extraordinary that this fact of experience, a central fact for the understanding of the contemplative type, has received so little attention from writers upon mysticism. As we proceed with our inquiry, its importance, its far-reaching implications in the domains of psychology, of theology, of action, will become more and more evident. It provides the reason why the mystics could never accept the diagram of the vitalists or evolutionists as a complete statement of the nature of reality. Whatever be the limits of your knowledge, we know, they would say, that the world has another aspect than this, the aspect which is present to the mind of God. Tranquility according to his essence, activity according to his nature, perfect stillness, perfect fecundity, says Rusburick again. This is the twofold character of the absolute. That which to us is action, to him, they declare, 
is rest. His very peace and stillness coming from the brimming fullness of his infinite life. That which to us is many, to that transcendent knower is one. Our world of becoming rests on the bosom of that pure being which has ever been the final object of man's quest. The river in which we cannot bathe twice is the stormy flood of life flowing toward that divine sea. How glorious, says the voice of the Eternal to St. Catherine of Siena, is that soul which has indeed been able to pass from the stormy ocean to me, the sea Pacific, and in that sea, which is myself, to fill the picture of her heart. The evolution of the mystic consciousness, then, brings its possessors to this transcendent point of view. Their secret is this unity in diversity, this stillness in strife. Here they are in harmony with Heraclitus, rather than with his modern interpreters. That most mystical philosophers discerned a hidden unity beneath the battle, transcending all created opposites, and taught his disciples that, having hearkened not unto me, but unto the Logos, it is wise to confess that all things are one. This is the secret at which the idealists and concept of pure being has tried, so timidly, to hint, and which the vitalists' more intimate, more actual concept of being has tried, so unnecessarily, to destroy. We shall see the glorious raiment in which the Christian mystics deck it when we come to consider their theological map of the quest. If it be objected, and this objection has been made by advocates of each school of thought, that the existence of the idealists and mystics absolute is utterly inconsistent with the deeply alive, striving life which the vitalists identify with reality, I reply that both concepts at bottom are but symbols of realities which the human mind can never reach, and that the idea of stillness, unity and peace is and has ever been humanity's best translation of its intuition of the achieved perfection of God. In the midst of silence, a hidden word was spoken to me. Where is this silence, and where is the place in which this word is spoken? It is in the purest that the soul can produce, in her noblest part, in the ground, even the being of the soul. So Eckhart, and here he does but subscribe to a universal tradition, the mystics have always insisted that be still, be still and know is the condition of man's purest and most direct apprehensions of reality, that he experiences in quiet the truest and deepest activity. And Christianity, when she formulated her philosophy, made haste to adopt and express this paradox. Quires ergo Deus meus, said St. Augustine and gave an answer in which the vision of the mystic, the genius of the philosopher, combined to hint something at least of the paradox of intimacy and majesty in that all-embracing, all-transcending one. Summe, optime, potentissime, omnipotentissime, misericordissime et justissime, cercatissime et presentissime, pocerime et fortissime, sabilis et incomprehensibilis, Immutabilis mutans omnia, nomquam novus, nomquam vetus, sempre ardens, sempre quietus, collegens et non agens, 
Portans et implants et portagens, creans et nutrients et perficiens, quaerens cam nil desit tibi, quid dicimus, Deus meus vita mea, jaltero mea sancta, avut quid dicit aliquis, cum de dicit. Note. Highest, best, most potent, i.e. dynamic, most omnipotent, i.e. transcendent, most merciful and most just, most deeply hid and yet most near, fairest yet strongest, steadfast yet unseizable, unchangeable yet changing all things, never new yet never old, ever busy yet ever at rest, gathering yet needing not, bearing, filling, guarding, creating, nourishing and perfecting, seeking though thou hast no wants. What can I say, my God, my life, my holy joy? Or what can any say who speaks of thee? End note. It has been said that whatever we may do, our hunger for the absolute will never cease. This hunger, that innate craving for and intuition of, a final unity, an unchanging good, will go on however heartily we may feed on those fashionable systems which offer us a dynamic or empirical universe. If now we admit in all living creatures, as vitalists must do, an instinct of self-preservation, a free directive force which may be trusted and which makes for life, is it just to deny such an instinct to the human soul? The entelechy of the vitalists, the hidden steersman, drives the phenomenal world on and up. What about that other sure instinct embedded in the race, breaking out again and again, which drives the spirit on and up, spurs it eternally towards an end which it feels to be definite yet cannot define? Shall we distrust this instinct for the absolute, as living and ineradicable as any other of our powers, merely because philosophy finds it difficult to accommodate and to describe? We must, says Plato in the Timaeus, make a distinction of the two great forms of being and ask, what is that which is and has no becoming, and what is that which is always becoming and never is? Without necessarily subscribing to the Platonic answer to this question, we may surely acknowledge that the question itself is sound and worth asking. That it expresses a perennial demand of human nature, and that the analogy of man's other instincts and cravings assures us that these, his fundamental demands, always indicate the existence of a supply. The great defect of vitalism considered as a system, is that it only answers half the question, the half which absolute idealism disdained to answer at all. We have seen that the mystical experience, the fullest all-round experience in regard to the transcendental world which humanity has attained, declared that there are two aspects, two planes of discoverable reality, we have seen also that hints of these two planes, often clear statements concerning them, abound in mystical literature of the personal first-hand type. Pure being, says Boutreau in the course of his exposition of Bohème, 
has two characteristic manifestations. It shows itself to us as power by means of strife, of the struggle and opposition of its own realities. But it shows itself to us as reality in harmonizing and reconciling within itself these discordant opposites. Its manifestation as power, then, is for us in the dynamic world of becoming, amidst the third and surge of that life which is compounded of paradox, of good and evil, joy and sorrow, life and death. Here Boehm declares that the absolute God is voluntarily self-revealing, but each revelation has as its condition the appearance of its opposite. Light can only be recognized at the price of knowing darkness. Life needs death. Love needs wrath. Hence, if pure being, the good, beautiful, and true, is to reveal itself, it must do so by evoking and opposing its contrary. As in the Hegelian dialectic, no idea is complete without its negative. Such a revelation by strife, however, is rightly felt by man to be incomplete. Absolute reality, the player whose sublime music is expressed at the cost of this everlasting friction between bow and lyre, is present, it is true, in his music. But he is best known in that light behind, that unity where all these opposites are lifted up into harmony, into a higher synthesis, and the melody is perceived not as a difficult progress of sound, but as a whole. We have, then, a. the achieved reality which the Greeks, and every one after them, meant by that seemingly chill abstraction which they called pure being, that absolute one, unconditioned and undiscoverable, in whom all is resumed. In the undifferentiated godhead of Eckhart, the transcendent father of orthodox Christian theology, we see the mind's attempt to conceive that holy other reality, unchanging yet changer of all. It is the great contribution of the mystics to humanity's knowledge of the real that they find in this absolute, in defiance of the metaphysicians, a personal object of love, the goal of their quest, a living one who lives first and lives perfectly, and who, touching me, the inferior, derivative life, can cause me to live by him and for his sake. B. But, contradicting the nihilism of Eastern contemplatives, they see also a reality in the dynamic side of things, in the seething pot of appearance. They are aware of an eternal becoming, a striving, free, evolving life, not merely as a shadow show, but as an implicit of their cosmos, felt also in the travail of their own souls. God's manifestation of showing, in which he is imminent, in which his spirit truly works and strives. It is in this plane of reality that all individual life is immersed. This is the stream which set out from the heart of God and turns again home. The mystic knows his task to be the attainment of being, eternal life, union with the One, the return to the Father's heart. For the parable of the prodigal son is to him the history of the universe. This union is to be attained first by cooperating in that life which bears him up, in which he is immersed. He must become conscious of this great life of the all, 
merge himself in it, if he would find his way back whence he came. Vaisoli. Hence, they are really two distinct acts of divine union, two distinct kinds of illumination involved in the mystic way. The dual character of the spiritual consciousness brings a dual responsibility in its train. First, there is the union with life, with the world of becoming, and parallel with it, the illumination by which the mystic gazes upon a more veritable world. Secondly, there is the union with being, with the one, and that final ineffable illumination of pure love which is called the knowledge of God. It is through the development of the third factor, the free creative spirit, the scrap of absolute life which is the ground of his soul, that the mystic can A, conceive, and B, accomplish these transcended acts. Only being can know being. We behold that which we are, and are that which we behold. But there is a spark in man's soul, say the mystics, which is real, which in fact is, and by its cultivation we may know reality. Thus, says von Hugel, a real succession, real efforts, and the continuous sense of limitation and inadequacy are the very means in and through which man apprehends increasingly, if only he thus loves and wills, the contrasting yet sustaining simultaneity, spontaneity, infinity, and pure action of the eternal life of God. Over and over again, as being and becoming, as eternity and time, as transcendence and imminence, reality and appearance, the one and the many, these two dominant ideas, demands, imperious instincts of man's self will reappear. The warp and woof of his completed universe. On the one hand, is his intuition of a remote, unchanging somewhat calling him. On the other, there is his longing for and as clear intuition of an intimate, adorable somewhat companioning him. Man's true real, his only adequate God, must be great enough to embrace this sublime paradox, to take up these apparent negations into a higher synthesis. Neither the utter transcendence of extreme absolutism nor the utter imminence of the vitalists will do. Both these, taken alone, are declared by the mystics to be incomplete. They conceive that absolute being who is the goal of their quest as manifesting himself in a world of becoming, working in it, at one with it, yet through semper ardens, also semper quietus. The divine spirit, which they know to be imminent in the heart and in the universe, comes forth from and returns to the transcendent one. And this division of persons in unity of substance completes the eternal circle from goodness, through goodness, to goodness. Absolute being and becoming, the all and the one, are found to be alike inadequate to their definition of this discovered real. The triple star of goodness, truth and beauty. Speaking always from experience, the most complete experience achieved by man. They assure us of an absolute which overpasses and includes the absolute of philosophy, far transcends that cosmic life which it fills and sustains, and is best defined in terms of transcendent personality, 
which because of its unspeakable richness and of the poverty of human speech, they have sometimes been driven to define only by negations. At once static and dynamic, above life and in it, all love, yet all law, eternal in essence, though working in time. This vision resolves the contraries which tease those who study it from without, and swallows up, whilst it kindles to life, all the partial interpretations of metaphysics and of science. Here, then, stands the mystic, by the help of two types of philosophy, eked out by the resources of symbolic expression and suggestion. He has contrived to tell us something of his vision and his claim. Confronted by that vision, that sublime intuition of eternity, we may surely ask, indeed are bound to ask, what is the machinery by which this self, akin to the imprisoned and sense-fed self of our daily experience, has contrived to slip its fetters and rise to those levels of spiritual perception on which alone such vision can be possible to man? How has it brought within the field of consciousness those deep intuitions which fringe upon absolute life? How developed powers by which it is enabled to arrive at this amazing, this superhuman concept of the nature of reality? Psychology will do something, perhaps, to help us to an answer to this question, and it is her evidence which we must examine next. But for the fullest and most satisfying answer, we must go to the mystics, and they reply to our questions when we ask them, in the direct and uncompromising terms of action, not in the refined and elusive periods of speculative thought. Come with us, they say to the bewildered and entangled self, craving for finality and peace, and we will show you a way out that shall not only be an issue from your prison, but also a pathway to your home. True, you are immersed fold upon fold in the world of becoming. Worse, you are besieged on all sides by the persistent illusions of sense. But you too are a child of the absolute. You bear within you the earnest of your inheritance. At the apex of your spirit there is a little door, so high up that only by hard climbing can you reach it. There the object of your craving stands and knocks. Thence came those persistent messages, faint echoes from the truth eternally hammering at your gates, which disturbed the comfortable life of sense. Come up then by this pathway, to those higher levels of reality to which, in virtue of the eternal spark in you, you belong. Leave your ignoble ease, your clever prattle, your absurd attempts to solve the apparent contradictions of a whole too great for your useful little mind to grasp. Trust your instincts. Use your latent powers. Appropriate that divine, creative life which is the very substance of your being. Remake yourself in its interest, if you would know its beauty and its truth. You can only behold that which you are. Only the real can know reality. Note to the twelfth edition. The changed philosophic outlook since this chapter was first written eighteen years ago has now given to it a somewhat old-fashioned air. The ideas of Bergson and Euchre no longer occupy the intellectual foreground. 
Were I now writing it for the first time, my examples would be chosen from other philosophers, and especially from those who are bringing back into modern thought the critical realism of the scholastics. But the position which is here defended, that a limited dualism, a two-step philosophy, is the only type of metaphysic adequate to the facts of mystical experience, remains in my own mind as true as before. Now that mysticism enjoys the patronage of many pious monists and philosophic naturalists, this view seems more than ever in need of strong and definite statement. End of Part 1, Chapter 2